0: Good morning. My name is Sharon Townsend, and I'm involved in uh, the women's Bible study, small group, and just other stuff. (laughs) This morning, I'm going to read from Revelation 15, 1 through 8, the seven angels with seven plagues. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations." Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witnesses in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished.
1: Well, my name is Zach Thompson, and if this is your first week with us, you've missed about uh, 10 or 11 weeks that we've been working through the book of Revelation so far. And, and if you think that you've missed all the discussion of judgment, uh, you would be incorrect. We still have a little bit more to go through. But what we've been talking about uh, lately, and especially last week, we, we looked at uh, this warning that's given to the church of the, the persecution and suffering that the church, those who follow Jesus, can and do and will go through. And there's also this pull that's in every single one of us to put our allegiance, to direct our worship to something other than God. And in the midst of that difficulty and remaining faithful, there's this call to the church to endure. One of the themes that we've talked about throughout the book of Revelation is there's this this pulling back of the curtains, this showing us what's really going on. So as we're told of of things going on on this earth that looks like conquering and capture and chaos and compromise, in the midst of all that, the curtain is pulled back to show us what God is doing, that he's active, that he's working, that he's bringing about uh, what it is that he is planning to accomplish. And one of the ways that God works is through judgment. We've seen this theme of judgment repeated over and over again. It started back in chapter 6, we're told of these, these seven seals that as they're open, they bring about judgment over a quarter of the world. Then in, in chapters uh, 8 and 9, we read of these seven trumpets that as they are blown, it brings about judgment, the wrath of God over a third of the world. And now here we are in chapters 15 and 16 where these golden bowls are poured out and it's the wrath of God over all of the world. And I think that our time would be best served today that as we're looking at another chapter on God's judgment, the wrath of God poured out, that it might be good for for us to take a pause and, and recognize why this is here. Maybe in all the repetition and in, in being in a section on the judgment of God for so long, we, we start to lose the significance or we get wrapped up in the details or, or we start to just get bogged down by how heavy this is to read every single week. That maybe you're like me, that this hasn't been the most fun section to be going through. And yet while we admit that, we can also recognize why this is important. We can acknowledge how we're feeling but also see why it's necessary for God to judge in this way. So we're going to talk about that. Why has there been all this discussion on the judgment of God? And the first thing that we're going to see, and it's actually, it shows up quite a bit in our passage, that uh, we're talking about all this judgment, this wrath of God, because God is just to judge. God has every right. He is just to judge that he is the one who could say what what is right and wrong to say uh, to hold people accountable for what is right and wrong that he is the only one who is just and in fact that because he is just it is necessary that he brings about justice if he wasn't bringing about justice then he wouldn't be just and so god is just to judge I mean, I think of the language that's used throughout uh, Revelation 15. It says, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. You alone are holy. Your righteous acts have been revealed. And then the end of chapter 15, we're, we're shown the, the, the holy dwelling place of God. We're, we're shown this tent where God is dwelling and it's from there, this place full of his glory that he's bringing out justice. He's acting out of his character to make things right. It, it might make us think back to chapter five, this incredible picture of, of the holiness of God, how massive, how uncontainable, how pure he is. And because he is a God like that, as the creator and sustainer of all things, the rightful ruler of all, he is just to bring about his judgment. And one of the reasons why he is just a judge is because uh, of what we see all over and over through this chapter, because of his holiness, because of how pure and good he is. I, I mean, think about human judges that, that we have. If, if a report came out, a, a news article came out that said uh, a judge was actually crooked, like uh, that they had broken the law themselves, when that's a judge, we don't just start to scrutinize their character, but we also start to scrutinize the rulings that they've made. I mean, if they weren't pure and good themselves, then how they're enacting the law, we have to assume would it be pure and good as well. And yet what we're told about God repeatedly throughout these chapters throughout the Bible is of how pure and good and holy he is. That he is the God who is only right uh, only just to judge because of how perfect he is. He is the only one who can perfectly decide what is right and wrong because he is holy. He's the only one who can perfectly hold people accountable because he's holy. He is the only one who can perfectly bring justice and judgment and punishment because he is holy. We've talked about it uh, even today about how revelation pulls back the curtains. It helps us to see more of what's going on, what is actually going on to give us this heavenly perspective. And I think so much of what aches us what makes us uncomfortable as we're reading about the judgment of God, the wrath of God, is that it's so difficult for us to take that perspective. That so much we're assessing the judgment of God from this life, being on this earth. And so we miss how necessary these judgments are. I mean, you think about when two humans get that disagreement with each other. The person who asks the question, what's the big deal? tends to be the person who did wrong in that conflict. That they're asking, what's the big deal? What, what, what actually did I do? And, and what we're told about here is, is that we, when we ask the question, what's the big deal? We do that as the people who've wronged the only pure and holy God. The, the rightful ruler of all, the one who's given us every good thing that we have in this life. We ask him as the ones who are wrong and rejecting Him. The big deal that it is is we are rejecting the life and the joy and the relationships and the beauty that He's given us in this world. We're rejecting the only ruler that there is. We're we're rejecting this rightful, holy one, the only God. See, I think it's these chapters that start with this praise of God that helps us to see how big of a deal our sin is. Imagine you you go into Buckingham Palace with a sledgehammer and you just demolish the entire interior. Uh, King Charles is there, you push him off to the side, hop on his throne, try on his crown, and, and just see what it's like to be king. You start issuing laws, but no one's really following it. It doesn't seem like they're acknowledging the authority that you have, you're on the throne, right? You're this king. And so when it's not going the way you want it to, you walk out, burning the place down as you go. How ridiculous would it be as you're being arrested to ask the question, what's the big deal? And yet that pales in comparison to what we've, gone, uh, uh, what we've done to this holy God individually and collectively as humans throughout human history. That, that he is the rightful king, the ruler of this world, and yet we've tried to rule on our own without success that he's given us every good thing that we have and we either destroy it or we try to take credit for, us as, uh, credit for it as our ingenuity. That he is the one who says what is right and wrong, who's called us to be holy as he is holy and yet we've turned away from him thinking that we could do better. And that's just us individually. Like when we think of our lives and where it hasn't lined up with what God has called us to do and yet at this moment in time Multiply that by 8 billion people on the planet. Maybe we start to understand a little bit more about how big a deal this sin is to a holy God. So how the only right and just response is the judgment of God from his holiness. And yet God is also just to judge because of his patience. He's just to judge because of his patience. This isn't something that he rushes into. I think of Second uh, Peter 3:9, which says, "The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowne- uh, slow- uh, slowness, uh, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." God is patient. And so he has every right. He is just to judge. He doesn't rush into a response to these things. I think one of the, the difficulties uh, that, that I'm working all the time to try to overcome in my role is, is kind of a combination of two things. One, I, I, I fancy myself as, as having kind of a quick mind. But, but the other side of it is whenever I'm feeling uncomfortable or I don't know what to do, or as a defense mechanism, which, you know, all those things happen fairly regularly, I I resort to humor in those moments. So really quickly trying to make a joke. Now the difficulty is, is that could actually hurt people. My, My words can harm people in those times, or it's not perceived as a joke, or, I mean, let's be honest, more often than not, it's just not funny. And so it's not doing what it's intended. If I was to pause, If I was to be patient in those moments, to see, to better assess the situation, to be more gentle in my response, to to demonstrate care for the person rather than trying to make a joke, that would would better serve the people that I'm interacting with, to just be a little bit more patient. We're told that God has every right. He is just to judge. It's enacting his his person. He is saying what is right and wrong. He has every right to judge. And yet he is patient. He doesn't rush into it. He doesn't immediately call for payment for sins right then and there. And I think we see that throughout the book of Revelation. I mean, we've talked about how there's this bit of a progression of these three different judgments. Going from a third to a quarter, now to all. It's showing this building that's taking place so that people can respond to it. Even as we look at the judgment that, that God does, it is done publicly, it is visible. In, in chapter 16, people know where the judgment is coming from so that people could respond to it. Even the fact that this book of the Bible is, is uh, coming up on 2,000 years old, that he has given it, us advance warning so that we can respond to it. He is patient. He has every right to judge for sins, and he is patient so that no one might face his wrath. He's given us every opportunity to avoid this judgment as well. Third reason why God is just to judge is because he is making all things right, that he is making all things right. That as he's bringing about his judgments, it's not just presenting some, some bad end for us to avoid, but in doing so, he's actually making things right as well. He is bringing about justice through his judgment. Justice has, has become uh, almost like a buzzword uh, these days, and, and maybe we, we associate something with it. That maybe there's a particular issue that we're looking for for justice on it, or uh, we hear about it from, from a group of people that we disagree with, and so we're associated with that. But, but I, I find it so interesting that so many people cry out for justice as people made in the image of God, uh, of a just God that the cry of our heart is for things to be made right. Everybody can tell you that there's something wrong. I think that's a great unifier of us all. Like across political lines and, and uh, national identities and, and ideologies, we all can say, things are not the way they should be. We start to become disunified when we disagree on what we say is wrong and, and who can, can make it right. Yet the cry of every person is for things to be made right. And God in his judgment is doing exactly that. See, when we look at these pictures of, of the wrath of God being poured out and we just, we just see this, this terrible end, when we praise God for our salvation because we get to avoid those things, that's true and good, but that's missing out on a whole other side of the story. That in bringing about God's judgment, He's actually bringing about those, the cry for justice that's in every person. So he has every right to judge, every right as this only holy one, as this one who, uh, who is patient, this one who is restoring all things in creation. The second thing that we see in these chapters is, is that God's judgments are true. God is, is just a judge. He has every right to do so. And the way that he judges, what it is that he's doing when he pours out his wrath, that is true and right and necessary. Look at uh, Revelation 16, starting in verse five. It says, and I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments For they, the people that the judgments are for, have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. True and just are your judgments. God's uh, God's judgments are true. Think about how much we are outraged when we hear of someone being wrongfully uh, convicted for a a crime that they didn't commit, or when uh, uh, punishments are much more severe than the offense that the person did, or when sanctions are put on a person or a company, but they're never really acted upon. Like, it just feels like it's lip service, and they're just allowed to continue doing wrong. We're outraged when we hear about those stories, And yet what we read about in the the judgments of God is that he, his judgments are true. That they're for the correct people, proportional to the wrongs that they've done, and that they will actually take place. Maybe as we're talking about these things, it's it's not quite quelling that, that ache that's within us that this is still difficult to read, the details that we talked about, even the passage that we just saw, uh, it, its this picture of wrath that's given, it, it's uncomfortable, it's hard to read. And, and I think we really should admit that that to be true. We, we don't like these things. And yet that doesn't mean that we minimize them or say that they're not important or, or to just push them off to the side. Because while we admit that we don't like the language here, we don't like that people are being judged, we see how necessary it is for God to judge. This is not just something that, that will happen and we just gotta get through it, I guess, but actually the reality that God judges, his judgment is good news. That what we see in these chapters in particular is that God's judgment is good news, and I think we get that when we understand just how much of of these two chapters, Revelation 15 and 16, how much of their background rests on the Book of Exodus. So Exodus, second book of the Bible, all the way back in the Old Testament, and here's a really just just basic uh, summary of the story to get us up to this point. So God's God's people, they were enslaved in, in Egypt for 400 years. Uh, that they were abused and punished and separated from their God and forced to do all this work for 400 years. And God rescues his people from Egypt through judgment on Egypt. And then you get to Revelation 15 and 16, and there's all these, these shoulder taps, the, this poking that's going on like, hey, hey, you remember the book of Exodus? Like all throughout these two chapters, there, there's those moments going on. In Revelation 15:2, uh, 2, we, we see God's people standing beside the sea, victorious. And, and we should be getting poked right there saying, hey, do you remember when this happened in the book of Exodus? How God rescued his people and they were standing by the sea? Or, or uh, in 15.3, there's this song that's being sung, praising God for his work, and, and this one should be more of a punch to the shoulder, because it says, the song of Moses, which comes from Exodus 15. All the while, it's reminding us of what's going, uh, what happened in Exodus to understand these two chapters. Even, even the bulls that we're told about, these plagues that are poured out onto the world, they mirror what God did back in the book of Exodus. This first bowl is poured out and it produces boils on those who are opposing God's people. That is very similar to the sixth plague that we read about in Exodus 9. The second and the third bowls turn water into blood, just like the first plague of the book of Exodus. Bowl five is... is Plague nine, which is darkness, and then bull. Uh, the opposite of that is, is what we see in bull four. It's the scorching sun. It's a parody of of the darkness. And then uh, bull six brings about frogs, like the second plague, and then bull and plague number seven produce hail. All the while, it's saying, "Do you remember the book of Exodus?" Even how God fights for His people in these two chapters sounds very similar to what we read about, and how God rescues His people from Egypt in the book of Exodus. Look at uh, Revelation 16:12. It says, and the sixth angel pour, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Uh, the east is kind of like the bad uh, place for the Israelites. They, they would often get invaded from the east. So uh, it, it's talking God's enemies are coming uh, through this dried up water. And this might, this should recall for us what God did to rescue his people from Egypt by holding back the waters of the Red Sea that prepared a way for his people to escape slavery, to escape uh, the, the persecution that they felt under Egypt. But all the while, the, the Pharaoh's armies are pursuing them, taking the exact same route. And it looks like the work that God did to provide a way for his people is actually going to lead to their downfall, that the work God is doing in restraining the water is what's going to lead to the Israelites being conquered and defeated yet again. And yet, it's in this moment, through the parting of the water, that God rescues His people and brings about judgment. Now, it may sound and it may look, because I have two fists up for some reason, it may sound like those are two separate events: God rescues His people, God brings judgment. But to do one is to do the other. By rescuing His people, God is pouring judgment out on those who are opposed Him. By bringing about judgment, God is rescuing His people. And now we get to this section of revelation and a way is made for these enemies, this army against the people of God, against God himself. This way has been made for them to go through the water and it looks like an invasion that they're amassing for conquering, to go against what God has done, that this work God has done is what's going to lead to their downfall As this army, this, this group gathers at a place, according to Revelation 16, 16, at a place called Armageddon. Now, we might have some questions about Armageddon. Uh, it's from what I could tell, just from a quick Google search, uh, it's based off of the name of a 1998 Michael Bay film. Uh, I think I got the chronology right on that one. Uh, no, but it gets to the point that Armageddon has has a really clear connotation in our in our, in our mindset. It, it means the end of the world, whether that's uh, natural disasters or uh, wars or uh, robots, or now everyone's terrified of AI. AI is going to bring about Armageddon. Like it, it's something that we use to talk about. The the end of the world. Well, Armageddon literally translates to Mount of Megiddo. Mount of Megiddo. And Megiddo is, is a city, like if you look at the uh, Old Testament Israel map, uh, Megiddo is basically dead center in the land that they had. And what we read about in Megiddo all throughout the Old Testament is it's the place where Israel would constantly be in battle about. As it's being central, it's this really flat, plain area. And so uh, Israel's enemies would fight against them constantly in this, in this area. You can read about it in um, Judges 5, 2 Kings 23, 2 Chronicles 35, Zechariah 12. And so it's, Megiddo has this very clear connotation of that's the place of war. One of the commentators that I read, Greg Beale, uh, he, he put it this way He says, Megiddo, uh, Megiddo became synonymous with place where righteous Israelites were attacked by evil nations. And so by bringing up uh, Armageddon, it, it's bringing about this idea of uh, God's enemies. Uh, the people who are opposed to the people of God have gathered once again for war. But what's really fascinating, it says it's Mount of Megiddo. As we said, it's this plain. It's a really flat area. That's why it was this great battleground. And, and, and so I think once again, we have this rival put up. All throughout these chapters, we hear of Mount Zion, where God, God has gathered his people, where he's protected them, where they are with him. And here is this rival mount where the enemies of God have amassed for war once again. But I find so fascinating here is they're gathered for battle, but we don't read about a battle. All we hear is that they're at Armageddon, they're out at Mount Megiddo, and then we read about their destruction after that. I mean, this sure sounds, once again, like what we found in the book of Exodus. Here's Pharaoh's entire army Amassed, uh, tracking down the Israelites to conquer them, to bring them back, to enslave them once again, and yet without swinging an entire uh, a sword or anything like that, the enemy is defeated. And here we have people amassed against uh, against the people of God, and without reading about a single battle, we hear the victory of God that I'm bringing about this judgment that he has rescued his people. And that is good news, that God is working in this time to right wrongs, to, to, to rescue his people, to redeem them, to bring them near to himself. And as we talked about, by rescuing his people, he brings judgment. By bringing judgment, he's rescuing his people. Let me show this good news another way. So as we talked about, it's these these seven golden bowls that are being poured out and that's the wrath of God. That's the judgment of God that's, that's going out uh, on the whole world. Now we've heard about golden bulls before, and it's really unfair. It's, it's such a cheat code. We're literally told what these bulls are as well. We don't have to guess. What's the symbol mean? It tells us. It's so unfair. It's gonna take a job away from me. It's just not being able to say, like, I know the secrets of things, if he keeps telling all the secrets of things. But back in, in Revelation chapter five, we're told exactly what these golden bulls are. Uh, this is Revelation 5, 8. It says, and when he, so the lamb, when Jesus had taken the scroll, the four creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So what is it that's being poured out? What's this judgment of God? Well, it's God responding to the prayers of the saints, the prayers of his followers, those who remain faithful. And again, we're told exactly what these prayers are. Go go to the very next chapter, Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. And it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who were slain for the word of God, for uh, for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. They prayed, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so what we see in in Revelation 15 and 16 is God responding to the prayers of his people, the crying out for justice to be brought about in this, this world, for wrongs to be made right. This judgment that's done, it's God responding to every cry that there is for justice, the desperate plea for God to restore things. This is every word that's uttered before going into a a doctor's appointment, knowing that this is not how things should be. This is every wail that's that's done from beside a, a hospital bed. This is every graveside despair. This is every time that we're reading the news and, and we just need to set it down because it, it's, it's hurting our heart to see everything that's so broken. This is every story that we hear, every cry in response to those who are killed or maimed or broken because of the name of Jesus. This is the weeping that exclaims, how long, O Lord? And the good news of God's judgment that's found in Revelation 15 and 16 is an answer is given to that prayer that says weep no more. Look at Revelation 16:7, 7, 17, sorry, 16:17. It says the seventh angel pour, poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne saying it is done. It is done. Weep no more, for things have been made right. Justice has come forth. God has rescued his people through this judgment. And so what do we do with this? And this has been the real difficulty of all these chapters on judgment. It's, it's the constant piece of, well, how does that shape our life now? What is our takeaway from it? Uh, or do we just walk away saying, yeah, that, that was rough. Um, I, I, I don't have anything inventive to get, give to you. I just have the same takeaways that we see in every single chapter of the book of Revelation that are so simple and so basic and yet take up the entirety of our life to fulfill it. The three things that I think that we could take away from this chapter is first and foremost, we respond through worship. I mean, that's been the big shock to me. I I, I mean, maybe it was floating around somewhere in the back of my mind, but just this reread of the book of Revelation, how much worship we are shown throughout it. How much we see people praise God for who he is and what it is that he's doing. Even in 15, 15 is almost entirely a chapter worshiping God for the good news of his justice. And, And I think that we spend our days doing exactly what we will do in the future, We worship him now because of who he is, that he is the only holy God, that his judgments are true, that he is making all things right, that he hears and responds to prayers. That makes him entirely worthy of praise. But I also think that we spend our days worshiping him because the greatest picture that we have of the wrath of God, him pouring out judgment onto the sins of his people is what we see accomplished by Jesus on the cross that those who put their trust and their faith in him they have their their sins fully covered by the work of Jesus. Revelation 16 tells us that there will be a day when we are told that God no longer needs wrath. We're told that it is done. But for those who put their trust in Jesus, we have already been told it is finished that we who who trust in him completely, we see that there is a day where God will no longer have any more wrath. And for those who follow his son, that day has already come. This is uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. It says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We have plenty of reason to worship him. Second takeaway that we have is we spend our days in witness as well. I mean, think about the fact that we're given these words in advance so that we can make disciples. We can tell others, the, those of us in this room, that we can put our faith in Jesus as well, that we can help people to see the joy that's found in him, the salvation from, from the punishment of sins, but also the life, the good that's found in him now as he is right uh, that he will and is righting all wrongs. See, one of the most heartbreaking parts of chapter 16 for me is three times we are told that people know exactly where their judgments are coming from. They know the judgments are coming from God and rather than repent, it says they did not repent. Instead, they curse God. And rather than, than that, uh, giving us, uh, having us give up in despair or just say what's the point of it, that should embolden us to witness, to tell the world, to make disciples while there yet is time. And third, we respond by waiting. We continue to be faithful. We continue to follow him even in the midst of all that's going on because the curtain has been pulled back. The promise of his return has been given to us. Promises like what we find in Revelation 16, 15. It says, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Blessed is the one who who is alert, who's waiting for Jesus to return, not being caught off guard, not being caught giving our allegiance or affections or following something else, but to stay awake and to keep your clothes on. If I was to pick just one of those, I'm I'm grateful for for those of you in here who've, who've chosen to keep your clothes on at least even in the midst of having difficulty staying awake. But this is the call that's given to us. What we saw in 1 Thessalonians, encourage one another, strengthen one another. This is what we do in the waiting, reminding each other of all the reasons we have to worship, of the call to, to make disciples of all nations as we wait for the greatest promise that's ever been given. Behold, I am coming, Jesus says. Let me pray. Father, we are, are grateful for the reminders of who you are, of what you have done, what you are doing. And as we read once again these chapters of your judgment that are, that are difficult for us, we remember how much of an encouragement they are to churches who struggle around the world who are faced daily with the difficulty of following after you, who see constantly the need for things to be made right. And for those of us, a a church that could be uh, more tempted with complacency than conquering, let us remember the, the necessary of these words that you've given, that you will pour out judgment that you will hold all things accountable. And for us, that is not something to minimize, but something that we see as so necessary because you are a holy God. Your judgments are true. You are making all things right. And in your judgments, it is good news for us because it demonstrates that you are rescuing your people. You're responding to the wrongs in this world. You are not letting them just go by, but you are making all things new. All things right. So help us to be strengthened. Help us to be encouraged to live faithfully for you, even in the difficulty of doing that. Help us to remember that you've given us a church community to help us to do exactly this. Help us to see more and more reasons that we have to worship you, of which there are endless amounts. It's to you and you alone that we praise. Amen.